that dude was a real scumbag. I mean, unless you've murdered someone, you're going to find it hard-pressed to hold a candle to the the debauchery that I lived for, for 10 years. And I think that's like the first thing that I would say is that it's never too late to change your past. On this week's episode of One Hour Intern, I learned from author, founder, and current CEO of the nonprofit Charity Water, Scott Harrison. Scott talks about living and caring for his deathly ill mother, his decline into and recovery from drug and alcohol addiction, and the experiences that motivated him to enter the nonprofit world. Scott, thank you for being here today. Hey, Will. It's fun to sit with you. Let's begin by discussing you today. You run a massive nonprofit organization, which has funded 44,000 projects and helped more than 10 million people operating out of 27 countries. Can you tell us a little bit about a day in your shoes? Yeah, there's a lot of flying involved. Yesterday night, coming into San Francisco, I think it was my 61st flight this year. So I have a spreadsheet. I just count airplane legs. So I spent a lot of time on the road. Um, I'll end the year you know, somewhere between 70 to 80 airplanes every year. This year, I've been in Uganda. I've been in Ethiopia. I've been in Rwanda. Last Thursday, I was in Milan. Last Tuesday, I was in Houston. So there's really no typical day. There are fundraising days. There are different themes of days. There are fundraising days where I'm jumping on a plane to tell the story of Charity Water. Sometimes that's to 10,000 people in an arena. Sometimes that's to 50 people in a home of a supporter or a donor. I'm typically asking them to get involved by sponsoring water projects or joining this much more high-end donor community we have called The Well. And I'm talking for 45 to 60 minutes about the history of the organization, the mission, the vision, and then answering a bunch of questions. So that's kind of fundraising days. Most of those days happen outside of New York City, where I live and where Charity Water's headquartered. Then there are field days where I'd be in Ethiopia. For example, I've been to Ethiopia 31 different times now since starting the organization. It's a long way to fly, about 28 hours uh, to get there. And a typical day in the field might look like getting up at five in the morning, jumping into a Land Rover and spending the next 12 to 15 hours visiting communities that need help, communities drinking dirty water, communities where women are walking eight hours with 40 pounds of disgusting water on their back, might visit our drilling rigs, spend time with our team, our technologists and hydrogeologists and technicians in the field. And that's getting a sense of the work. Then there are office days where I'm in New York City and I live a, about seven minute walk from our office. And I normally take my kids to school in the morning. I'm in around 9.05 and it's a day of internal meetings. I might have 10 meetings in a single day and then try and be home by 5.36 to give my kids a bath and put them to bed. And how do you balance this crazy busy schedule and all of this travel? I don't even know how to answer that question. I try to get enough sleep. I try to you know, get a handle on when I'm doing too much, which I don't always get right. It's funny, I'm, I've got a cold right now because I think I just ran myself a little too hard over the last couple months, but you know, I haven't really been sick in, in three or four years. And, you know, I'll know when I need to power down, when I need to shut down the laptop, take a week with my kids and, and my family and just read, jump in the pool and switch off. But it's been a really demanding schedule now for, you know, what, 15 years. Can you give us a bit of an overview of the mission of Charity Water and how you, the company kind of came to be? 
Sure. Um, our mission is very simple. So we are trying to bring clean and safe drinking water to the 663 million human beings right now who are drinking disgusting, dirty water. So about one-tenth of every human alive on the planet today is drinking contaminated, diseased water from swamps or ponds or rivers simply because of the conditions they were born into. Now, for most people listening, we were born in the nine out of 10. You know, we were born in, into a privilege in a world where we have healthcare and education systems and, and of course, clean water. So we're really focused on bringing that 663 million down to zero. Most of those people live in Africa and in India and in Southeast Asia and in what we call developing nations. And 82% of those people live in rural areas. So that's Charity Water's focus. We're not working in the big cities or the towns. We're working in these remote rural areas where 82% of the people, about 500 and some million people living without clean water are today. Now, the way that we do that, we raise money from the public. We have tons and tons of elementary school and high school and university students involved. They raise money through grassroots efforts. We then take 100% of all those donations and we fund a variety of water projects through these countries. So sometimes we drill wells, sometimes we harvest the rain, sometimes we'll build huge gravity-fed pipe systems and connect to villages with networks of pipes. We call them solution agnostic. Whatever the right solution is for that specific community that needs help, that's what we're doing. And we've got about 10 different technologies across the portfolio. And, you know, it's, it's, it's worked. We've raised uh, about $400 million. And, and that's really thanks to millions of everyday people who have come together and said, well, maybe I could do something about this. You know, I'm sure, Will, you see this with a lot of your friends. You know, they look at the world and say, it's unjust, it's not fair. You know, there, there's so many people that are needlessly suffering that don't even have their most basic needs met, like clean water. And we have found a great way to get people access to clean water. It just takes money. And how do you, you said that you get the ordinary people and not just big donors to help you. How do you do that? We've done a lot on social media. So we were the first charity to get a million Twitter followers. We were the first charity to use Instagram. We have really tried to tell stories online using photos, using videos over the last decade. Stories that just show people how real this is. You know, it's, it's really easy to numb out when you hear a statistic like 663 million people. I mean, it's what, you know, 70 San Francisco's. It's two times the population of America. It's just a huge mind-boggling number. So we have told stories of the individual people who make up that statistic over time. 13-year-old kids who are walking six hours for water at risk of rape or attack by hyenas or lions or crocodiles as they go to get their water. We've told stories of children, you know, born next to a diseased, contaminated water source. We told stories of teenage girls who have to drop out of school because there's no water and there's no toilet at their school. And they've got to stay home four or five days every month because they're not going to go to a school with, with no water, with no toilet. And they fall behind in their studies and they drop out and then they go and just fetch water all day long. So I think we've made over a thousand videos in the last 10 years. We've got a really young, dynamic team of creatives who loves to travel the world and bring the issue to life, bring the stories to life that compel people to act. Do you have any specific stories from your work that you feel have inspired you or changed the way that you work? Yeah, there's two I write about in the book. 
I'll tell one sad story and then a much happier one. The first is is a story from Ethiopia, and it was a couple of years ago, and I was staying in a five dollar night hotel, and I was in the little restaurant of the hotel, and the owner came up to me, recognized me, said, "Oh, you're the charity water guy. You you're doing good work." He said, "Let me tell you a story." about where I'm from. And he says, I'm from a very remote area, about four hours from here. And when I was growing up, all the women were walking eight hours a day for dirty water. And, you know, that sounds so crazy. I mean, imagine your your full work life or your school life being used just to collect dirty water. And it's not a Monday through Friday job. There's no weekends off in water collection. If you don't get water on Saturday or Sunday, you could die. You don't drink water. So he says, you know, I grew up without having water. And he said, there was this 13-year-old girl named Leta Kiros who lived in my village. And one day after she finished or almost finished her eight-hour walk, she slipped and she fell. And she was carrying a clay pot on her back. She, he said, the clay pot broke. And she watched the water that she had just spent eight hours collecting run out into the dusty earth. And he said, she was so upset that she took a rope and she tied it around her neck and she climbed a tree and she jumped and she hung herself next to the broken pot. And he said, you know, uh, he remembered the village elders finding this 13-year-old girl's body swinging from a tree with a noose around her neck because she had just simply dropped her water. And I remember thinking at first, oh, there's no way that story's true. You know, I'm the international donor. Tell me a sad story, right, to get me to give more money. And it just nagged at me. And I went to actually go and live in that village for a week. And I walked in her footsteps and I met her mother and I met her best friend who walked with her on that fateful day. And I saw where she got her water. And I actually stood under the tree where she had hung herself. And I remember asking her friend, and I said, why do you think she did it? You know, why do you think she just didn't go get more water? Go get another clay pot and go back that afternoon or that evening. And her friend said, one word, they'll never forget. Her friend said, shame. I was like, what do you mean? She said, well, she was such a diligent girl that she would have been ashamed that her carelessness now meant the valuable asset, the clay pot of the family was broken and there was no water. And it was actually too late. She couldn't do another eight hours that night. So the whole family would go without water for dinner and, and wouldn't be able to cook. And she felt so strongly that she had let her family down that the best course of action was to take her own life. And that story just, you know, hit me on such a, a visceral level, you know, thinking, I mean, I'm sure everybody listening, right, can agree, 13-year-old girls should not be hanging themselves from trees with nooses around their neck simply because they spilled their water. But you get it as well. Imagine if you had to walk eight hours a day for your whole life. And so that's just one story of one of the 663 million people worldwide and what it might be like to be a girl named Ledekiros Hailu living in a, a village called Maida um, in the Tigray region of, of Ethiopia. A much happier story, uh, there's a woman named Helen Apio that got clean water from a charity water project. And our team was visiting her village and she lived in Uganda. And our team said, hey, Helen, now you have clean water. Tell us how your life is different. And Helen began to to recount what it was like before. And she said, I would walk a long distance and I would carry these two yellow cans that I would fill with water, almost fuel cans. And it was a few toilet flushes full of water for us, about 10 gallons a day that she was able to carry. 
And she said, I would bring it back into my village and I would never have enough water. And I would make these daily decisions on what do I do with not enough water? I've got a husband. She said, do I wash his clothes? Do I let him bathe and wash his body? I've got kids. Do I wash their school uniforms? Do I wash their bodies? And she said, I have to, I have to cook. Everybody needs to drink water. I need to garden and I need to clean the house. So there was just never enough water. So she could only do different things every day. And she said, you know, as a Ugandan woman, I always put my family first. So I never use the water for myself. And she told our team, she said, now that there is clean water in my village, now that charity water brought clean water into my village, she said, I could take all the water that I want. And she said, now I am beautiful. Now I'm beautiful. And our team's like, what do you mean? Of course, Helen, you're a beautiful Ugandan 60-year-old woman. She said, no, no, now I feel beautiful for the first time in my life because I have enough water to wash my face and my body and my clothes. And she said, now look at me, I'm looking so smart. And she had this beautiful green dress on, it was clean. Uh, her face was clean, her body was clean, her hair was clean. And you know that got to us as well. I mean, just think about, gosh, water, something so many of us take for granted but it had the power to restore dignity to a woman. It had a, the, the power to make her feel beautiful again, to go from feeling dirty every day because she was sacrificing for her family to feeling clean. And, you know, that's what we're in the business of. I mean, we want to make sure that no woman, no child is having, you know, suicidal thoughts because of their walk for water. We want to make sure that no woman thinks themselves ugly thinks of herself ugly because she doesn't have enough water to, to be clean or to wash her clothes. Your first story is very tragic. Can you talk about how, what you took away from that story and how it kind of affected your life? Yeah, it just pissed me off. I mean, I remember standing next to that tree and taking a picture and just the thought that a 13-year-old girl born into horrendous circumstances had no moves, had no options. And I was born in a middle-class family in Philadelphia. My kids, you know, born into another middle-class family, mine. And they'll just have water. They'll know clean water. I'm sure 99.9%, .9 if not 100% of the people listening to us right now have just known clean water. It's just there. And it just, it just made me angry, uh, the injustice of it. And it, it made me come back wanting to work harder, raise more money, and go faster. Did it change any of your personal values or have any monumental other than inspiring you to work harder? Did it kind of change the way that you looked at the world? You know, I get asked a lot if, you know, do I use water very differently than, than others, you know, having been in some of the most water-stressed places in the world? The reality is that saving water here does not provide water for the people over there, because 663 million. I don't buy bottled water. I mean, I live in New York City, so our tap water is fine. I think maybe less behavior change. You know, I'm not, I don't come back from a trip like that, let's say, and and maybe take a dramatically shorter shower because I just know that that is going to have no bearing on getting someone like that clean water. I think I look at water with a much deeper appreciation. I think I try to have a lot more gratitude in my life. Again, spending time, I mean, I was with a woman in um, Niger, which is a country in West Africa in the Sahel Desert. And she told me that eight of her children died. She buried eight children. She named them all, and then she gave me the ages of their deaths. And two survived. And, you know, I'm a parent myself. I've got two uh, beautiful children, a five-year-old boy, a three-year-old girl. And the thought of losing one child, I mean, when my kids get sick, 
I'm heartbroken. So the level of empathy, you know, as I try to put myself in a parent's shoes who has buried eight children that they loved, it really makes you want to help. And, and we actually were able to help her get clean water for her, her final two children, her remaining two children. Now that we've kind of discussed you today, let's move back to your childhood and kind of how you got to that place. So you're born in Philly, like you said, but you grew up in Jersey. You had a bit of a different home life as a child because of your mom's sickness. Do you, could you talk about your family life and how that affected you? Yeah. You know, when I was four years old, there was this tragic accident. There was a carbon monoxide gas leak in our home in, in South Jersey. And this was before they had in, invented the household carbon monoxide detector, which hopefully everybody has in their homes now. And we didn't know that there was a leak and then it was in the dead of winter. So all the windows were closed. And on New Year's Day, 1980, my mom walks across the bedroom. She collapses unconscious on the floor. And it took us a while to realize that it was actually carbon monoxide blood poisoning. That changed everything, you know, for our life. My mom became an invalid. She never recovered from that. My dad and I did recover. We, we actually had some symptoms early on, but, you know, they, they found the leak before it had really damaged our bodies. And I grew up in a caregiver role. I grew up in a family of faith. My parents were Christians. They decided not to sue the gas company for negligence because of their Christian faith. And I was a church kid and went up, you know, every Sunday playing piano and Sunday school and, and all that. And I was just a good kid. I, I didn't smoke. I didn't drink. I didn't swear. I didn't sleep around. I took care of my mom and I went to church. And then I think at 18 years old, I had this moment when I graduated high school and said, look, I've sacrificed my youth. You know, I didn't have any fun growing up. And there are all these rules, these constricting rules in my life. And now it's my turn to break the rules. Now it's my turn to go off and find myself and, and find my passion and my career and my purpose. And, you know, unfortunately for me, the approach I took was one of rebellion. I'm just going to go and do the opposite of everything that I was taught growing up. So I moved to New York City. I joined a rock band. I was a keyboard player, piano player. and I grew my hair down to my shoulders, which looks stupid. The band quickly broke up a couple months later, but I became a nightclub promoter in Rebellion. I thought, well, what better thing to do than drink in public for a living? I mean, I'm going to fill up nightclubs and I'm just going to get gloriously wasted every single night. And, you know, in an act of rebellion, move to New York, start clubbing, start smoking, drinking, drugs, gambling, pornography, strip clubs. I mean, you name it, pretty much every vice except mainlining heroin, I start taking on. And I actually become really successful in nightlife. I become one of the top New York City club guys, you know, and arguably the best city in America for nightlife. And what my day in the life looks like then is I'm going to dinner at 10 and I'm only dating models on the cover of fashion magazines and I'm flying around to Milan and Paris and dinner at 10, the club at 12, after hours at 4, you know, coming home drugged up out of my mind at noon, you know, popping an Ambien to try to go back and sleep and then do it all over again the next night. And it was a really interesting contrast. It took me 10 years to wake up, but it was 10 years of clubbing and partying and chasing girls and chasing the party and chasing money and chasing status. And I woke up one day, a decade later, and my girlfriend was on the cover of fashion magazines and I had a Rolex watch and I drove a BMW and I had a nice apartment in New York with a grand piano in it. 
And I went on the best vacations and I flew private on other people's planes. And I realized that I was a worthless, degenerate scumbag. I realized that I had contributed absolutely no good to society for 10 years. That my profession was putting people into a box and getting them loaded with alcohol and, and maybe even drugs that they would maybe score inside the club, but somehow I didn't ever had anything to do with that. And the more they got loaded, the more sex happened, the more drinking and spending happened, the more money I would make. And I realized that, you know, if I died at 28 years old, my tombstone was going to read, here lies a selfish, degenerate nightclub promoter who got a million people wasted. Who wants that on their tombstone? And how did you come to this recognition that what you were doing was wrong? Because it's a major transformation in your life. You know, it's almost, Hemingway said this somehow. It's like, it happened very, very slowly and then overnight. You know, it, it was almost like the frog in the, in the pot boiling. And I just had this moment where, you know, I realized I need to jump out and the water is boiling around me. Um, I had a health issue. You know, this is the first chapter of the book, which is called Numb. Half my body went numb inexplicably one day. And I went to go see all the doctors and neurologists and there was nothing wrong with me. I thought I was dying of some brain tumor, you know, had some terrible disease, but I was completely fine. But it was a wake-up call. Maybe I wasn't invincible. Maybe I wasn't going to live forever. Maybe going to bed at noon, you know, high on cocaine, you know, or coming down with Ambien was not a good idea. And that was one moment. Then there was this New Year's Eve trip to Punta del Este in South America, a place in, in Uruguay, where I was with all the beautiful people in a beautiful compound, and we were drinking magnums of Dom Perignon, and there were yachts, and I should have been fantastically happy. I mean, there was nothing better than this. And I realized I was miserable because there was never going to be enough. Well, there would never be enough girls. There'd never be enough money. There'd never be enough status. Somebody would always be richer and somebody would always have more. So it was really these different moments. There was a health moment. There was a decadent vacation kind of coming alive moment, realizing that, well, if I'm not happy here, I'm never going to be happy in this. And then there was really a, a moment of conscience and faith. And, you know, I, I, I woke up and realized that I was spiritually bankrupt. I was morally bankrupt. I had betrayed the Christian values that I'd been brought up with. I'd betrayed the morality. And I really wanted to find my way home to, to all of that and see if I could start life over at 28. And the whole process took about six months from, you know, this, this realization to actually getting out. And I asked myself the question... About six months later, I said, what would the exact opposite of my life look like? I mean, I realized that a pivot was not in order. You know, this wasn't a small 30 degree change that was needed. I needed to radically transform my life. And when I asked myself that question, what would the opposite of my life look like? It would be to give up all the vices, to quit smoking, to quit drinking, to quit gambling, to never look at porn again, to quit the drugs. And I thought, well, what if I could do one year of humanitarian service? What if I could leave nightlifes and selfish living behind and go serve a charity, go serve the poor? So that was my idea. And being a pretty radical guy, I just began applying to the famous charities that I'd heard of. I was surprised at first when nobody wanted to take me because charities aren't typically in the market for nightclub promoters <laughs> with drug habits. But one organization said, look, if you're willing to go live in post-war Liberia, West Africa, 
then you can volunteer with us. And by the way, you also have to pay us $500 a month. So if you pay us $500 a month, and if you go live in the poorest country on the planet, a post-war apocalyptic scenario in Liberia, then you can volunteer. So I said, great, I'm in. Here's my credit card details. Here's some money that I've saved. And when do I start? And I started in three weeks. And just like that, I quit everything and started a brand new life as a humanitarian. It's amazing that you can turn your life around. But for a lot of people, it's really, it's really hard to make that kind of, to recognize that you need to turn your life around and even to act on it. For those people who have kind of gone down a dark path or in a place where they need to realize that something's wrong in their life, what would you tell them? Well, I think a lot of people feel like their past defines their future. You know, there's a lot of guilt. There's a lot of shame. And I think, you know, that was one of the reasons I wrote the book was I wanted, I hoped people would read it and say, well, I thought I was bad. That dude was a real scumbag. I mean, unless you've murdered someone, you're going to find it hard pressed to hold a candle to the the debauchery that I lived for, for 10 years. And I think that's like the first thing that I would say is that it's never too late to change. Your past not only doesn't define your future, the mistakes of your past, not only don't define your future, but you can actually redeem those things that you've learned. You can redeem the mistakes and actually use them for good. So the cool thing about working with this first humanitarian organization and now Charity Water was I took the thing that I was really good at for 10 years, which was promoting, which was storytelling. I just had that directed on nightclubs and $20 cocktails and $1,000 bottles of Cristal in nightclubs. I was filling clubs with the most beautiful people, telling them a story, promoting the idea of coming out to the best clubs and getting wasted and spending lots of money. I just took that same skill in everything I'd learned in 10 years, being successful at that, and focused it on telling redemptive stories that would end human suffering. I'm still promoting. In two nights, I'm going to put together a gala and we're going to raise $6 million in an hour here in San Francisco as 450 people come together in black tie that are generous. They are going to hear stories. I'm going to stand on stage and I'm going to ask them to give out of the kindness of their hearts and get nothing in return. And in not even an hour, and in 20 minutes, we're going to raise $6 million to help over 100,000 human beings. So you know, that's, that's more people that I could ever fit in a club. And that's a lot of alcohol to sell. So I think, uh, you know, it, first of all, the realization is so important too for people. Just think about the intention of your life. Where does it play out? Does it play out in selfishness or does it play out in a life that you can be proud of that is actually helping others? What is your purpose? Is your purpose to get rich? Is it to have a bigger house? Is it drive the Porsche or the, you know, the Ferrari one day, I would argue that you will never be happy. I have been surrounded by some of the wealthiest people on the planet. I have been, I've stayed in $40 million homes. I've been on Necker Island. I have, you know, been driven around in Ferraris and Lamborghinis. And I can assure you that that does not bring happiness or any sense of purpose. So I think, you know, the, the intention, the through line, what do you want your life to say? I would start asking those questions now. My favorite quote comes from an ancient rabbinic text. Came across this quote over a decade ago, and it says, do not be afraid of work that has no end. We are all working towards something. And, you know, in the way that I interpret that, if your work is a selfless work, if your work is aimed 
at improving the lives of other people, then it's, it's a never-ending work, but it actually matters. And, you know, we'll, we now have helped 10 million people get clean water. I hope to get to continue working together with the sector and with many other people who are also doing this to see a day when zero humans are drinking bad water. But then I'm not going to drop the mic and go try and become rich, you know, and go buy Lamborghinis. I would take everything I've learned through that work, through the humanitarian work we've done for decades, and focus it on another problem, maybe hunger, maybe a, a justice issue or, or a healthcare issue. So I think it's just, it's really important to think about what do you want your life to, what do you want on your tombstone? How do you want to be remembered? I just saw Bill Gates speak last week in New York and they asked him, how does he want to be remembered? And he said, actually, if I'm successful, the things that I have done in my life, eradicating malaria, eradicating polio, you won't remember me because you won't even remember those things. You know, the people listening to this, your kids, if, if Gates is successful, this will not know malaria was ever even a thing, right? They might read it as a half page in a, in a textbook once. So, you know, I just, I thought that was a really beautiful idea. If I'm successful, you know, I'm, I'm remembered for the things that I've erased on the planet. Therefore, I'm not even remembered. And I think that's not how most people think. That is a revolutionary idea, which if most people could come to that would change the world. But how do you do that on a, on a day-to-day -day scale where you're trying to, to survive and you're trying to make enough money to get to the next day, get to the next month? Yeah, I think you have to be comfortable with what enough is. You know, for me, enough is renting a two-bedroom apartment in New York City with my wife and my kids. I drive a Kia Sorento, which is a great car. It's not a Range Rover. It's not a Porsche Cayenne. It's not a Tesla SUV, but I could care less. If I had that extra $60,000, I wouldn't upgrade my Kia Sorento to a $100,000 Range Rover. I would go help six communities get access to clean water. So I think it's, it's, it's knowing what is enough. And the problem is most people, there is never enough. There's never enough. You know, you think you want to make a million dollars and that's enough. But then you get to a million and say, well, what about 10? I got to go for 10. And then you get to 10, oh, I got to go for 100, right? You get to 100, well, a billion looks like it might actually be possible, right? And it's often just this sense of, you know, how much can I accumulate? Now, I think some people, there's the giving pledge out there, you know, I just read a book of uh, Chuck Feeney, an amazing, amazing story. Find the title here. It's, he was the guy that did duty free, made billions and billions of dollars. And then he gave it all away. He gave it all away. It's called How Chuck Feeney Made and, yeah, How He Made and Gave It All Away. Incredible, incredible book. So I think, you know, if you have that vision, I, I do know that there are some people that are looking to make money and build companies and create real value and innovate with a sense of using that money for good. But I think sometimes just being really clear about that purpose and knowing what is enough. You know, for us being middle-class the rest of our lives is enough. My kids go to public school, I fly coach, and you know, it's enough. Before you mentioned that you applied to a bunch of different charities and you were denied by them, how did being denied affect or not getting those roles when it's you're applying to a charity, how did that affect you? Yeah, I mean, it's so long ago, but I just remember being bummed and, and a little surprised, I think, finding out how hard it was. But of course, you know, if you really think about it, I mean, this is, imagine applying to UNICEF to do work in Darfur, Sudan, 
and getting people drunk for a living. I mean, <laughs> I can't blame them. It would have required real vision to see that I would be useful. And I think I got really lucky with Mercy Ships because they needed a photojournalist. I actually had a degree in NYU in journalism, and I was a pretty good photographer, and I was a pretty good writer. And so on paper, I was accredited to do that specific job that I wound up volunteering for and, and paying to do. So I think I got really lucky. But, oh, rejection is hard. I get rejected all the time. I mean, today, you know, look, it's a crazy thing. I recently came off a stage in Denver, Colorado, and I gave an hour-long keynote to 6,000 people to a standing ovation. And then I went and I signed hundreds of copies of my New York Times best-selling book. And then I went to a donor dinner of 10 people, and they were completely disinterested in what we were doing. And it was a giant waste of time. And didn't didn't give a dime. And I spent three hours after it. So you just keep going. You just keep going. You know, you try to stay optimistic. You try to, I mean, I, I deal with so much disappointment in my job. You know, I'm always wanting people to be more generous. I'm always wanting people to give more. I'm always wanting there enough to be radically less than nine Lamborghinis in the driveway. You don't need nine cars. I want to scream sometimes, but I can't ever judge people. You know, so I'm I realize how unhelpful that is. So I'm just trying to put all of my energy and focus when I might be, you know, in a in a situation like that to say, hey, you could also do this with some money. You know, by giving generously, by giving sacrificially, by giving a little more, you could create such change. You know, the power of one car is 20 communities with clean water. So it's my job to bring that alive and not walk around with a chip on my shoulder, not walk around wagging my finger saying, well, if it was mine, I would spend the money differently. It's my job to be an ambassador for the poor, to tell better stories and create a compelling reason to move some of that capital to people that need it most. You also said that you worked in Liberia for when you were with Mercy Ships. Do you have any specific stories from there that kind of helped develop personal values or help you get into Charity Water? Because I know that your experience at Mercy Ships inspired you to work Charity Water. Yeah. So I realized that in Mercy Ships, so Mercy Ships, 25, they were a 25-year-old organization at the time, or at least the ship had been sailing up and down the coast of Africa. It was a medical ship, big hospital ship that had spent a quarter of a century sailing up and down Africa with the best doctors in the world, bringing it to these countries that didn't have access to medical care. So my role was going to be to tell stories. And, you know, I really kind of developed some of the entrepreneurial skills on what turned out to be a two-year mission, which was also where I found out about the water crisis in Liberia. And I was kind of stuck a little bit in a bureaucracy. And I remember there were all these rules. You know, you could go off of the ship by renting one of the ship's vehicles for only four hours at a time. I'm like, well, I can't go and explore and tell real stories four hours at a time. So I'm going to go buy a motorcycle. And so I bought a used motorcycle in Liberia, taught myself how to ride a motorcycle. And now I had total freedom, right? So I, I could go off for a day or two days with, with permission. And some of the best stories actually came with that, that, that extended time out in the villages, meeting people, just to set the scene a little bit. So Liberia had just come out of a 14-year civil war. Charles Taylor, the warlord, had fled the country. It had been found in the boot of a taxi cab crossing the Nigerian border, hiding in the trunk of a taxi. And the country had no electricity, no running water, no sewage system, and no mail. So completely 
completely broken country. And we were there to pick up the pieces. I remember there was one doctor for every 50,000 citizens. So one doctor for every 50,000. Here in America, I think we have a doctor for every 200 of us. So if you got sick in this country, you were just out of luck. So that's what we were there to do. We were there with the doctors. So I really developed a hard work ethic too. I mean, I remember working, well, 70 to 80 hours a week. I mean, I was there to serve. I wasn't there to watch movies. I wasn't there to have fun. I was there to learn everything I could about this country in West Africa, about the problems facing the poor here, about the humanitarian work the doctors were doing, and about the root causes of some of this sickness, which I later learned water, dirty water, was responsible for 50% of all the sickness in the country, and 50% of the people in the country were drinking dirty water. So half the country without water, half the sickness because of bad water. So that's how I found water as an issue. So I think the things that I learned there was A, work really hard. B, be an entrepreneur. You know, I was, I was really, didn't want to be constrained by the rules or by process or bureaucracy. You know, I needed to find ways to, to innovate. And then maybe the third thing was I was really fortunate to go there with a guest list. So I had about 15,000 emails that I had just collected over the 10 years of, of nightclubbing. So I tried to instantly redeem that email list by sending stories and pictures and videos to the same people that I invited to clubs. But this time it was an invitation for donations saying, you can help sponsor a well, you can help sponsor a medical surgery. Here's what's going on. Do you want to be a part of it? And to invite them in. You talked about your purpose there was to learn and you said it wasn't really to have fun. So how did you maintain positive mindset in this face of seeing complete devastation? Yeah, I mean, I was trying to have fun too. Having a motorcycle in post-war Liberia was a lot of fun. I found this little like beach shack that I could go to on weekends and read or go surfing or, you know, there was an exploration culture. I would go to the, the mines. I would go see, I don't know, towns that I'd heard of, rubber plantations. You know, there was just this sense of learning, wanting to voraciously understand and learn as much as I could there. And, and I think maybe that's a little bit of advice. You know, now I employ a lot of young people. I employ people in their 20s. And it does seem like there is a sense of work-life balance that I certainly didn't have in my 20s. I mean, my 20s was all, you work as hard as possible. You know, there was no Netflix and chill culture. <laughs> you know, oh, I need to make sure that I've got my own personal time, and my time for the movies and my time to binge watch, you know, five seasons of Game of Thrones or whatever the heck it is. I was using that time to pursue a craft. Well, nightlife for one. And then, you know, when I started this at 28 through my 30s, it was, it was building charity water. And now being 44 years old, I've actually got the luxury of working less hard and spending more time being a husband and a father to young kids because I work my tail off through my 20s and, and my 30s. So that, that's another thing. I mean, I just, I didn't have time for anything else that wasn't work during this time of trying to perfect my craft and learn. Not really having time for anything else is kind of a daunting way of looking at life. Is there a way that in this experience, you made sure that you did have free time that you held a positive, like you had a stress-free mind and you didn't have yeah. to deal with all these problems? It was these weekends on the beaches. It was riding the motorcycle around, you know, specifically in Liberia. It was riding the motorcycle around. It was time to think. It was, you know, going for hikes. I guess maybe it was a less entertainment driven 
Does that make sense? Instead of maybe just feeding myself with movies or TV, you know, it was more exploratory. It was more time to think, to recharge, to rest and relax. So that was kind of Liberia. You know, honestly, Will, the early days of Charity Water was just, I mean, when you're starting anything, you know, any company, any nonprofit, it just requires so much. I mean, we were working seven days a week. I remember leaving the office at one in the morning and coming back at nine on a Saturday, you know, coming back Sunday morning at nine. However, though, that, you know, that, that intense burst, that period of hard work. And again, I was fortunate not to be married and have kids. So I wasn't letting anybody else down. That then kind of allowed for a lot of success to happen. And I have a completely different pattern now. I mean, I just told you I work nine to 530 when I'm home so that I can do five days in the morning with my kids and, and five nights, you know, at home with my kids. But I think a lot of that hard work put in early, there is a real organization now. You know, there are over 100 people in New York that are with supporting roles. There's over 1,000 people around the world that are all contributing towards this larger purpose. So I don't have to do it all alone. You mentioned a couple of times that you have two kids and you're happily married. What do you see your job as a parent is? Oh, man, it's to teach my kids morality, integrity. I care so much more infinitely more about who my children become, the kinds of people that they are, than whatever they might do, whatever profession they might engage in. So I want my kids to be kind. I want them to be compassionate. I want them to be generous. I spend so much time talking with my five-year-old about kindness and, you know, be, be the kid that in kindergarten that says, hey, you can, you can sit with me to the person who might be lonely or, or who might be sitting off to the side. He has traveled a lot with me. My son, my five-year-old's done 50 flights. He went on my book tour. He's been to Europe. He's been a bunch of places. I'm going to take him to Africa next year, to Madagascar. I want him and my daughter, when she's a little older, to understand that the middle-class way that we live in New York City is not how so many people live. And I want them throughout their whole lives asking the question, how can I use the privilege that I have been born into to elevate others, to reduce the needless suffering of others who were not born into that privilege. How do I use my time? How do I use my talent? How do I use my money to help other people? I deeply, deeply care about that for my kids. Not how do I make myself richer? How do I build an empire? I want them thinking about others and putting others first at a really young age. And again, not in a martyr complex, but because they will find the greatest joy through that. When you serve others, like when you give, it is better than, than receiving. And you don't need to be a martyr to do it. I've got a great apartment. I've got a great car. I, you know, my wife and I have enough money to go out to dinner and to go on vacation a couple of times a year. So, you know, this isn't about being a martyr and like, you know, putting on sackcloth and ashes, but it's also, you know, people ask me a lot, well, they're like, well, why don't you just become an entrepreneur and just build a company and then give a bunch of money away. And, you know, I say, well, okay, first of all, that's really hard <laughs> to do. And I said, how many people, like how many of your friends have given away $400 million, right? And we're going to raise another 85 million this year. And in, you know, four years, it's going to be a billion dollars and then 2 billion. Now there's a very few people that have done that, right? But because I've chosen to live my life this way, because I've allowed $400 million so far to flow through my hands to the poorest people in the world, 
you know, or at least towards our, towards our mission of clean water. And I haven't tried to grab onto that. You know, I think it's an, it's an impact that I can be really proud of. And hopefully my kids are proud of. And that number is going to be billions and billions and billions of dollars. Far greater, I think, than, you know, my shot of being Amazon, you know, or, or, or the next Bill Gates. Obviously, your kids are young and it's hard for you to, to think about specific time that you have to do these things now. But in the future, how do you plan on inspiring these values in your kids? Travel. They'll just come with me. They'll come with me to Africa, to Cambodia. They'll come with me to Nepal. They'll come with me to Bolivia or Honduras or Guatemala. They will see how a huge population in the world lives. And they will, they will see it. They will smell it. They will taste it. They will hear it. They will not grow up in a bubble. And a lot of people are unable to travel like this, which, I mean, you can't say, you can't necessarily say from what, what to do if you can't travel. But how do you get that worldview that inspires these values if you can't travel? I mean, you can travel virtually now through documentaries and... Uh, <laughs> There, there are so many specials on just about any topic. You know, if you want to become an expert now on malaria around the world, on global hunger, I mean, you could watch hundreds and hundreds of hours of content and there's thousands of books that you could read. So I think, uh, you're right, I've got the luxury of a job that takes me around the world to these situations where my kids will be able to piggyback on top of. But no, I think it's fighting an interest. Well, I just go back to what I said earlier. If if the intention of your life is focused on others, on how can your purpose be making this world a truly better place for the inhabitants of this world, looking around, and this could be in your local community. It could be the, the people who are suffering on your back door. How can you dig into some of those issues and use the resources you've been blessed with to end some of that suffering? You know, I feel like sometimes the gap is just widening and the poor get poorer and the, you know, the, I learned how much money is sitting in donor advised funds. You know, it's extraordinary money that's just not being put to any charitable purpose. And it's just accumulating and accumulating and accumulating. And there's so much in the world, so many needs where that money could be put to use. So if you're starting a nonprofit, you know, I would say, you know, maybe there's a specific issue that, that somebody listening to this says, well, water's not my thing. I think that's great and all, but sex trafficking is my thing. Like no child should be, you know, chained to a bed and forced to have sex with, you know, an adult 40 times a day. Or, you know, man, I don't think people should go to bed hungry or homelessness. You know, someone has to find better solutions that are currently out there. I think it's asking yourself what questions, what things are not okay on your watch. And then what could you do about it with passionate, purposeful work with high integrity? On a, on a different note, still regarding family, what have you learned from being a father of two and being happily married that it's kind of changed, not necessarily changed your life, but how has being in that position helped you grow as a person? It's a great question. I'm, I'm lucky, I think, that I'm an older dad. So, you know, I had my first kid at 39 and I know who I am. So my identity was really solidified. You know, I'd already been at Charity Water for nine years and had raised a quarter of a billion dollars and you know, helped millions of people get clean water. And because I got to work with my wife for nine years, that was never really attention. I mean, she would just come with me. We were in this together. Having kids really shifted so much of the focus 
from work to family. And I remember reading a biography of a very famous, what's now a $2 billion humanitarian charity founder. And boy, this guy was dynamic. Well, he flew around the world. He raised tons and tons of money and fought for kids in need all around the world. And he was never home. He was always on the road making speeches, fundraising. And his daughter committed suicide. And I, I forget the details of the suicide note, but basically said something to the effect of, you know, my dad was <laughs> a good dad to millions of kids around the world, but not to me. And I remember thinking, man, that's never going to be me. I will never make that sacrifice. So I've really, I know the travel sounds a little crazy, but I'm home a lot. I'm on the 6 a.m. home. I'm on the red eye home. I'm doing day trips. You know, I'm out and back in the same day. You know, I'm in Italy for 16 hours just to make school pick up at three o'clock or to make school drop off. So I just, I love it. I mean, I think the, the daddy business is the best business of all. I love being a father so much. I love my kids so much and I love spending time with them and, and teaching them things and answering their questions and playing. And I mean, I'm like obsessed with Legos at the moment and you know, all the stuff that you just get into because of your kids. So I think it's taught me, I mean, I, family is so, so important. And just being so intentional about that. So I stopped scheduling breakfasts and dinners that interfere with bedtime or breakfast time with the kids. So sometimes they'll do a late dinner. I'll put the kids to bed at eight and I'll have a late business dinner at 8.30 or nine if I'm not too exhausted. But I'm not doing a dinner at seven like I used to because that time is so precious. So I, I deeply value that hour bedtime and just make choices very differently. And maybe that means I raise less money. Well, I know it does. I actually know it does. So being a good dad comes at the expense of people getting clean water. That is actually, there, there's a definitive, every time I get out on the road and every time I make speeches, I raise a lot of money at this point. So when I'm saying no to things to be home with my kids, that is a tension that I live with. But I also think it helps the, the longevity of my leadership, maybe my role as the leader of the organization, because I can go to sleep at night knowing that, that all is well, that I am a good husband and I am a good father. And, you know, we're still helping 5,000 new people every single day get clean water because of the movement of Charity Water. And other people have been empowered to step up. Now that we've talked about who you are today, how you got there, let's kind of just zoom out and just talk about, are there any really big failures that you've had in life that you feel needed help stepping out of and you think it's important to share how you got out of those? Yeah. You know, I write about a lawsuit in the book that it would take me too long to get into now, but there was kind of a moment two years into Charity Water where we had, uh, a company had raised some money. We had spent it in Kenya. Our local partner had done some you know, less than optimal work. We got some fluoride. We had water quality issues in the wells and it wound up turning into a lawsuit and it was such a challenging time. I think I realized that I couldn't sleep for a year and, and we, it wound up having a, a very positive outcome for Charity Water in the end. But I think what that taught me, I mean, I, I internalized too much. I wasn't able to kind of do what you just said here, get to 30,000 feet. The organization and my identity were so commingled. So when the organization was under threat or the organization was not doing well, I wasn't doing well as a person. So my emotional health or I, you know, I was, and that happened a, a couple times over 
the journey where something bad would happen to Charity Water. We would lose a couple huge donors. We would serve less people and I would just be a personal mess. And it would affect me so deeply because I cared so much. 13 years in, I've really learned now how to take bad news much more in stride and remind myself that I'm the leader of the organization. I'm a husband. I'm a father. And as long as I and we are not compromising our values, we take things in stride and we try to solve the problems and, and move forward. So I've, I've now actually seen that change in myself because I went into such dark holes before. I don't know what advice would have, uh, I mean, lots of people were giving me the right advice, but until you live through, you know, some of that kind of, depression's not the right word, but just the angst, the, the darkness, you know, I felt like, I was inadequate. I felt like I wasn't good enough as a leader. And, you know, I didn't cut myself any slack. You know, I was really, always really hard on myself. I always felt like I needed to hold myself to a much, much higher standard than anybody else would ever hold me. Like you said, advice may not work in that situation, but for people who are brought down by angst and too high standards for themselves, what advice could you give? Probably gratitude. I think gratitude solves a lot of things. Waking up in the morning and just, you know, I, I still pray with my kids in the morning and just, you know, or we, we just, we name things that, uh, that we're grateful for. You know, we play a game where we try and say a hundred things that we're thankful for, you know, and that includes families and spaghetti and, you know, Legos and rockets and firemen and astronauts. And, you know, I mean, you can imagine, but it's, it's such a, boy, when, when you're done naming you know, 50 or 100 things that you're truly grateful for, you're in such a different place. And I think just trying to keep it in perspective too. You know, sometimes it feels like these problems or setbacks or failures are the whole thing. They're rarely the whole thing. It's normally just an aspect. I mean, recently we got a report from, we work in now 29 countries. We got a report, a bad report on one country and some of the work that we're doing there, we audited the quality and it's just, it's kind of a mess in this one report. And, you know, I had to remind myself, this is one of 29 (laughs) and we need to go and fix it. We need to go and address it. We need to go and solve it. But, you know, I caught myself being so upset and dismayed and well, oh my gosh, like, what are we going to do? And like, what we're going to do is we're going to go take this information and we're going to go improve that water program and, and our partner's response and the quality of the, the solutions there. So I think I might've dealt with it in a much more dramatic fashion three or five or seven years ago. And now just am able to keep things in perspective a little more. That's it for questions from me. So thanks for making it today. You have an exceptional story, which I think can really inspire a better future. Thanks. Let me, let me plug our, our video. If people want to go and see some of the images um, behind what we talked about, we made a 20-minute video that's gotten about 25 million views now. Um, and it's called thespring.com. So they can just go to thespring.com and see it. And do you have any closing remarks you'd like to make? Any advice that you want to give to the listeners or any stories you want to tell that you think are important that we didn't touch on? Gosh, I don't think of myself as an advice person. I think you already tried to extract some. I mean, an experience that you feel helped you learn something. And hearing that experience, just hearing someone talk about that experience really helped even me or someone else kind of take something away, maybe something that you didn't take away. I think a regret I have is that, I don't know if people 
feel this. There was an affinity towards chaos and chaos meaning a breaking of the rules, that the rules are bad, that morality was bad, that, you know, nobody should tell me what to do. And this sense of needing to fully assert my independence. And, you know, that, that didn't work for me. You know, the, the selfish pursuit left me so deeply unhappy when it was played out to its end because it was all focused on my contentment, my happiness, my wealth, my accumulation. You know, it was me at the center of it all. Eventually, you know, faith became a big part of my life again. So instead of me, it was about, it was about God. It was about a, you know, a higher power. And then through that, it really became about others. But, you know, I would say for people with no spiritual background or affinity, you know, really kind of check yourself. Like, where are you going? What is the end to which you're living your life? And play it out. I mean, so you get the next job and then you get the promotion and then you get that job and then you get that job and then you get that job. So fast forward five years and 10 years, you know, what does your life look like? What would be written on your tombstone if you died at any moment? Were you a generous person? Were you a person with the highest integrity? Were you honest? Were you kind? Did you help others? Did you make sacrifices? Were you a giver? Were you, you know, were you the first to always say, yes, I want to give to that? Did you lead with generosity? I mean, I would really think about the rule of life. How do you want to live your life? How do you want to be remembered? And I think so many people just don't. They just kind of go through life. You know, it's the next thing, and this is what the culture is saying, or this is what our friends are doing. And I think just taking that, that time to reflect, you might make different decisions. That's all I got. Scott. Thank you for your time. It was perfect. Cool. Check out the book if, if people are into reading it. It's called Thirst. Go to thirstbook.com and all the money goes to Charity Water. Perfect. On the next episode of One Hour Intern, I learned from the CEO of SoFi and the former COO of Twitter, Anthony Noto. During that challenging part, there has to be adversity. There has to be confusion. There has to be a period of resilience and then breaking through that resilience and breaking, being persistent, and that becomes learning. And I can remember when I was learning algebra in eighth grade, going home to my mom and saying, I don't understand why there are letters with numbers in these equations. And my mom saying, I don't even know what algebra is. And just literally every night trying to figure out what the hell the letters were. Thank you for listening to One Hour Intern. I hope that you explore more of our episodes Follow us at One Hour Intern. The one is spelled using the number one. And if you enjoyed, please rate, follow, and subscribe. The One Hour Intern is produced, hosted, and written by me, Will Brigger. My co-producers are The Blue and Studio Pod. Till next time, thanks. <laughs>